Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word keys for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with a code word keys. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome. Thanks for joining us on Keys for SLPs for this episode, Keys to Recovery After TBI a story of friendship, resilience, and self-advocacy. My name is Mary Beth Hines. Before we get started, here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of Keys for SLPs and receive compensation from speechtherapypd.com. No relevant non-financial relationships exist. Laura Morgan receives an honorarium from speechtherapypd.com for this presentation. No relevant non-financial relationships exist. Anna Miller-Zolkowski receives an honorarium from SpeechTherapyPD.com for this presentation. No relevant non-financial relationships exist. And now, here's a little bit about our two guests today, Laura Morgan and Anna Miller-Zolkowski. Laura Morgan is a director of speech-language pathology and certified brain injury specialist at Head Injury Rehabilitation and Referral Services in Rockville, Maryland. In 2012, after earning her master's degree in speech-language pathology from the University of Tennessee, Laura started her clinical fellowship in Frederick, Maryland. Halfway through the fellowship, Laura was a buckled passenger in a serious motor vehicle accident. She sustained a moderate-severe brain injury in the accident, but as a result of the long rehab process, gained a unique perspective on head injury for the field of speech-language pathology. Laura has shared her clinical reflections from being both a provider and a recipient of this discipline in articles and dozens of multimedia presentations. Laura restarted and completed her clinical fellowship at HIRS while also earning a certification as a brain injury specialist. Laura loves working with individuals and also leading groups. She aspires to inspire and assist others in discovering hope after brain injury. Anna Miller-Zolkowski is a senior speech-language pathologist and certified brain injury specialist at Adventist Rehabilitation Hospital in Rockville, Maryland. She is also a co-facilitator of the Brain Injury Support Group of Rockville. Anna has joined Laura in various presentations and was her co-author in a 2015 article published in the ASHA Leader. Anna completed an undergraduate degree in psychology from Haverford College in 2007 and a master's degree in communication sciences and disorders from the University of Maryland in 2012. Anna's experience as a friend during Laura's recovery has led to a passion for person-centered care and patient autonomy. Welcome, Laura and Anna. We are so excited to have you here for this episode. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Well, thank you for being here. So I just want to say that I learned about Laura's journey while I was working on my very first episode of Keys for SLPs. When I saw that Laura was presenting at ASHA last year, I changed my airline return ticket just to hear her speak. And I'm so glad that I did. Not only was I inspired by Laura's journey as an SLP and brain injury survivor, but I was also inspired by Anna Miller-Zolkowski's commitment to her colleague and their story of friendship. I am honored to have you both here to talk today about keys to recovery after TBI, friendship, resilience, and self-advocacy. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Well, thanks for being here together, and you have been friends for a long time. So can you describe your journey of friendship and your journey to become SLPs? Love to. Well, it's quite a journey. 
and we'll try to summarize it as best we can. I graduated with my master's in speech-language pathology and concentration in oral habilitation from the University of Tennessee. Then I moved back home to Maryland. I accepted a clinical fellowship position in a skilled nursing facility where I met and quickly became close friends with my coworker, Anna. Yes, so that's me. I'm Anna, and I graduated with a degree in speech-language pathology from the University of Maryland in 2012 and began my clinical fellowship at the same skilled nursing facility Laura mentioned that August. And Laura started there about two weeks later. As anyone who's done a clinical fellowship knows, it can be an intense and emotional nine months. So Laura and I ended up carpooling to and from the facility and bonded over being kind of naive new grads in this very intense and sometimes difficult, <laughs> often actually difficult environment. But we learned a lot and grew together. Yeah. So I had completed about four and a half months of my nine-month CF. This was exactly halfway through when my grandmother unfortunately passed away. My parents and I put on pause our busy work schedules and preparations for the upcoming Christmas holiday that was less than a week away. We loaded up our van with things to be displayed at my grandmother's funeral, along with my cello, which I was going to play in the service. And as always, we buckled our seatbelts <laughs> and said a prayer for safety. I took a seat in the back of the van, and with my seatbelt buckled, I fell asleep. Several hours into the drive, our van drifted off the road and slammed into a parked 18-wheel semi-truck. At the exact time of the accident, a car with two off-duty nurses was traveling in the opposite direction on the highway. Personally, I give credit to a higher power for that incredible coincidence that I have little doubt saved my life. The nurses saw the accident occur, pulled over, ran across the median as they called 911, then held my head in the medial position so I could breathe. I've stayed in touch with those nurses and even had the opportunity to meet and thank them in person. They told me that when they ran to the vehicle, the whole side of the car was peeled back so they could directly see inside the vehicle. I was the most seriously injured and was hanging out of the van as far as the seat belt tethered to my waist would allow. Initially, I was given a Glasgow coma score of 3, which is the lowest possible score. Later, we learned that I had sustained a moderate, severe, diffuse axonal TBI, traumatic brain injury, broken my jaw, broken several ribs, had complete fractures of spinal vertebrae C1 and C2, and several additional incomplete fractures of other spinal vertebrae. I was taken by ambulance to the nearby Lynchburg General Hospital, where I was stabilized, then flown by helicopter to the University of Virginia Hospital. And I visited Laura there about two weeks later. At that time, Laura, I think you held my hand and visually tracked me, but did little else. And then later, you were transferred to Innova Rehab, where I visited again. And this time, you were much more alert, and you remembered me, but did not really remember anything about the skilled nursing facility that or any of the work we had done together. In general, you were much more communicative, but frequently repeated questions and stories. And so after Laura's accident, I continued my clinical fellowship and eventually completed it, but it was not easy. It was obviously a very emotional time for your family and nothing would compare to their loss, but I felt a significant loss in my life too, because we every day had been carpooling and really like crying together, <laughs> laughing together too, just giving each other encouragement to get through the day and, you know, new grads and think, I don't know, everything. It was a lot of support we were giving each other. And then 
that was gone. Plus, I was very, very concerned about you. So I gathered support from family and friends and your family too kept me updated along the way too, which I'm very grateful for. I also began seeing a therapist for my own mental health because it really did suffer at that time. Like I said, I struggled a little bit with how much to reach out to your family just because you and I got very close, but it was only four months, right? Four months. And so they, I didn't know them. I didn't know your parents or your sister very well. So I kind of felt like I didn't want to intrude, but I also, I cared about you and wanted to know what was going on. Anyway, but they did a lot of personal outreach to me and also the Caring Bridge website, which I think maybe we can talk about a little bit more later, was also really helpful in being able to know kind of how you were doing and keeping updated on all of that too. Well, you really were in uncharted territory. You know, you were at a point in your life where you were in this, you know, new job, new career, new CFY. You had met this wonderful new friend. But your friends didn't know her. They didn't know Laura because she was a work friend and your family didn't know her. And you don't really know. It was probably hard for you to figure out what your role was because you weren't a longtime friend, but you were a new friend and you had gotten, sounds like you had gotten very close very quickly because of your shared SLP CFY experience. Yeah, that is a really good point too, that actually I haven't thought about that much is that my friends and family, I obviously talked about Laura a lot because she was a big part of my life, but not a lot of them had met her. So that did make it more difficult in some ways. But you stood by each other. And that's why the story is such a great one. So you went from, did you stay, Laura, in the same rehab throughout your recovery? So given the gravity of my injuries, my family was warned that I might be paralyzed, ventilator dependent, and cognitively unable to hold a job for the rest of my life. But thankfully, I was fairly quickly weaned from the ventilator and progressed from being tube fed to a regular diet. Apparently, I'm told that after a month or so in the hospitals, I could see the screen as the SLPs were reviewing a swallow study that had been performed on me. (laughs) My dysphagia knowledge must have gone on autopilot because (laughs) apparently... I was interpreting what I saw on the screen out loud. Summarizing my inpatient days is a little difficult because I have absolutely no memories of any of those 72 days. Memories are also fuzzy and sparse in the months leading up to the accident and the initial months after I was discharged home. Once home, I completed outpatient physical therapy, occupational therapy, and good old speech therapy at several local hospitals, starting at Innova Mount Vernon Hospital in Virginia. While completing those outpatient therapies, I also volunteered over 500 hours of administrative assistance to two fabulous speech pathology clinics. While I never sought them out, I found myself giving over 20 multimedia presentations for graduate speech pathology departments, medical and research facilities, including Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and the National Institutes of Health. So, Laura, how did that come about? Did they just hear your story from like a friend of a friend or a colleague and then they contacted you? My dad worked his whole career as a biomedical engineer in the neurological sciences at the National Institutes of Health, NIH. So that's how he connected me to a longitudinal study of TBI that was being completed there. So I was completing that. And I grew up as a military dependent because my dad worked for the public health services of the military. So I had connections to Walter Reed. And that's how I started volunteering there. That's great. Well, I'm so glad you did because your story is so compelling and so educational for so many health professionals. So that was a good connection. I'm glad you had that opportunity, which, you know, probably was one of the ways that I eventually got connected with you. So that's great. I'm very grateful. Well, thank you. Okay, so Laura, it sounds like you were feeling better, you were volunteering, you were giving multimedia presentations, and you were 
hoping to become an SLP. So what happened at that point? Right. Despite my best efforts, my limited license expired before I could continue and finish my CF. I had forgotten. I relearned that there is a two-year time limit for you to complete your nine-month clinical fellowship, which normally would be no problem. But the accident had occurred when I was halfway through my clinical fellowship. So when the possible clinical fellowships fell through, I was devastated because it meant I would have to retake the praxis. Who wants to retake the praxis? No one. Nobody, especially after a severe head injury. (laughs) I gave up hope of ever becoming an SLP. Then a question from the audience after one of my presentations literally changed my life. During the question and answer portion of a presentation I gave for the Brain Injury Association of Maryland, someone in the audience raised their hand. Later, I learned that that hand belonged to Mr. Thomas Krawolski, who was, at that time, the Director of Rehabilitation and a speech pathologist of a wonderful not-for-profit center in Maryland for individuals with uh, various disabilities and impairments specializing in traumatic and acquired brain injuries. Mr. Krawolski asked a simple question, but it revealed his belief in my potential, giving me the hope that so few medical professionals were willing to offer me at that time. He asked, are you going to finish your clinical fellowship? I responded by quipping, I don't know, are you going to give me one? After the presentation, I obtained Mr. Krawolski's name, contact information, and learned some about the center where he worked, the Head Injury Rehabilitation and Referral Services, HERS, that is in Rockville, Maryland. After a tour of this center, Mr. Krawolski gave me the opportunity to disclose what I believed to be the biggest barrier I faced at that time. I acknowledge my need for compensatory memory strategies, but I honestly identified my greatest barrier at that time being my need for an opportunity. And that's exactly what hers gave me. I started working there as a cognitive rehabilitation assistant. Then, after several months at HERS, I restarted my clinical fellowship. All throughout my fellowship, I continued to meet frequently with the ever-patient and willing Anna to review all things speech pathology. During that time, I also studied for and passed the examination to join Anna as a certified brain injury specialist. I now work full-time as the only speech therapist of hers, leading individual sessions and several groups. Wow, that is such an inspiring story and shows such resiliency. You know, time and time again, when you were told no or I don't think so, you just believed in your potential. And kudos to Tom for believing in your potential as well. And of course, kudos to Anna for standing by your side and helping you with that praxis because you guys are probably in your mid-20s then. Anna had passed the praxis and I'm sure she had other things on her plate, right? But she was a true friend and I think that is such an amazing story and it's such a good example for us all. Speaking of example for us all, do you have any hints? Because you are one of the few people who has Past the praxis twice. I know that uh, I've had some friends who have gone in and out of the field and they've run into situations where they had to take the praxis again after they had left the field, but you never really left the field, but you had to take it again. So you studied together. So do either of you have any little hints or suggestions for people who might be taking the praxis for the first or second time? Well, I was grateful to have a study partner, a willing study partner, and it may have helped to have real life applications and examples of what I was studying that Anna could say, oh yeah, I've done that, I've seen that in this way, and it helped those facts stick in my brain. Oh, that's great. So really having the examples so and the real life experience. 
Yeah. And not that I would recommend anyone to go studying for the praxis if you don't need to take it again, but I actually did learn a lot from that experience as well. And like, feel like there are things like Laura was saying, like once you're in the field and you go back to some of the stuff that you need to know for the praxis, it makes more sense. And yeah, so, you know, there were other things going on in my life, but I also really, I enjoyed spending time with Laura helping her and it helped me as well. Well, that's wonderful. So now that you've had this experience and and you have, so you completed your CFY with hers and then you went on to be hired by them. So congratulations. What year was that, by the way, like when you had completed your CFY and started to work? So January of 2018, I started as the director of speech language pathology at the Head Injury Rehabilitation and Referral Services. Before that time, I had completed my nine-month clinical fellowship, and before that, I worked there as a cognitive rehabilitation assistant. Okay. So with all that experience, what did you learn from a patient perspective, and Anna, what did you learn from a friend perspective that you would not have known if this had never happened, if the two of you had just gone on with your CFY and completed it together and listen to great tunes on the radio on your way to and from? Well, quite a lot. Here are some highlights in no definite order. I'll start with a little brain injury humor. At some point, I was talking with a rehab therapist, and fortunately for this story's preservation, my mom and sister were present. Apparently, the therapist asked me if I had any pets at home. While in reality, my family just had a dog and a cat at that time, I replied, Oh yeah, I've got lots of animals. Dogs, cats, baby lambs, and I'm a big time duck feeder. (laughs) Of all the cool occupations to dream up and brag about, (laughs) feeding ducks. Apparently, I've got some pretty lofty subconscious ambitions. But the ducks bring me to an important point. Through my experiences, I reviewed the term confabulations, which, as you already recall, are the unusual and often humorous attempts of the brain to make sense of a situation without the conscious intention to deceive. My wild occupation as a duck feeder is an example of a confabulation. And here's a takeaway for you. Don't assume a patient's crazy story is indicative of them being crazy. There might be bits of truth in their story, and all it really points to is a brain working overload to make sense of an unbelievable situation. As my cognitive skills returned, so did my ability to recognize all I had lost and the challenges I faced. I started referring to this as the double-edged sword of cognitive progress. I'm sorry, can I jump in there real quick? Just because that is something that I use a lot. Like I use that term. I think you first, I don't know if you coined it or you had heard it from someone else. But anyway, I now say that to my patients and their families a lot. Like when people are starting to kind of emerge and realize what they've lost, but also like that can be that good sign, right? That they are maybe remembering and more aware of things. So I really like that double-edged sword analogy. Very relatable to what's going on. Yeah. And you can kind of remember, you could recall feeling that double-edged sword. Oh yeah. And I'll be vulnerable and admit right now that it has continued. Sometimes when I least suspect it, grief is strange that way. Grief will come back and need to be reassessed, re-acknowledged at different times. Yeah, so the I think it's ongoing, the double-edged sword of cognitive progress. Having been on both sides of the SLP table, I recognize some of the challenges that this discipline is up against in the process of rehab after brain injury, as well as some motivating clinical resources. One thing I observed is that goals of therapies like those in PT, physical therapy, more easily lend themselves to determination. 
since you can see the results of your hard work or see the need for modification or a new source of motivation. I personally experienced how if the task was cognitive in nature and I got something wrong, I had to try again with the use of the problem solving or other strategies being addressed. I couldn't just tell my brain to simply work harder. Also, if the brain injury survivor has short-term memory deficits, as I did and as is very common after head injury, the strategies can't be recalled until they become a habit out of repetition. So, in my experience, cognitive challenges could really be like banging my head against a wall over and over and over. I think that like what I tell my patients sometimes or what they say to me is that progress in OT and PT is usually more tangible. Like you can really see it. You can understand, okay, I think I know what I need to do to move my hand more or to walk further. And in speech, it's really quite abstract sometimes to figure out what you actually need to do to get to your goal. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's really helpful if we can somehow make these cognitive tasks tangible. Show an example of use of the strategy, something to make the strategy come alive and be memorable. And really habituate it. Mm -hmm. So what suggestions do you have to make some of the strategies more tangible? So I think one thing that Laura's family did a lot was document her progress. So they would take videos and maybe they wrote everything on this CaringBridge site. So I think that helped Laura go back and see what kind of progress she had made. So I think as SLPs, if we can do that same kind of thing, that can be definitely helpful. Again, we may talk more about this later, but also just self-rating scales, goal attainment scaling, just ways that we have actual visuals of like where you are now with your goal, where you want to be, where you were before. I think those types of things can be really helpful too. That's great. And Laura, do you agree? Yes, I totally agree. One thing that we have discussed is that when the brain is involved, you can't assume that the survivor recalls their starting point. So many times people would try to encourage me by saying, but look how far you've come. And I couldn't remember how far I came. And I honestly didn't want to remember (laughs) my starting point. So the most encouraging thing was just to give me encouragement for the here now. Okay. So you didn't really want to, like, for example, in the handout, which thank you for providing the handout, and that is available to everyone who is listening on speechtherapypd.com, or anyone who would like the handout can go to speechtherapypd.com and get it. But on the handout, you have a picture of you in the hospital, probably during your first days. So do you find that that kind of picture, at least initially, was really hard to go back and look at? I don't know. I don't know if it was hard to look at, but I had no emotional connection to that person. It kind of resembled me, maybe, but I had no memory of that. So I didn't really find encouragement by comparing my current state with the one pictured that I had no recollection of. So were you, when you experienced frustration, were you comparing yourself to the baseline of how you were, like, let's say when you graduated from University of Tennessee with your master's degree? Is is that what kind of, because that was about four months before the accident and that's what you were comparing yourself to? Absolutely. That's right. So when I would think back, what the last thing I could remember was, When I was really physically fit, I had just trained for a Tough Mudder, and I was halfway through my clinical fellowship, so that's where I thought I was. And musically, I, by that time, been playing several instruments for decades, and then I would find myself, oh, wait, this is apparently my reality. I have no memory of this, no connection to it. Wow. So as far as music goes, how much of your musical memory came back initially and now? 
And are you physically able to play the instruments that you played before? Thank you. That's a good point. Music was really important to me and a big part of my life. I didn't lose the ability to read music, but due to my left hand, I can no longer play. I was a pianist, banjo player, cellist. I can't play any of those instruments. Since the accident, I have picked up hammer dulcimer, um, where I can hold the hammers in an adaptive way to play that instrument. I'm not even familiar with that. What is that? A hammer dulcimer, it's like a harp that you lay flat and you hit with little hammers. <laughs> That's a very rough definition of it. <laughs> That's so cool. How did it, you come about playing that? Did you say, oh, that's something that I could do? Or did like an OT suggest it to you or another musician? Or how did that come about? A hammer dulcimer was given to my family to borrow. And I tried it out that and it was a grieving process. I was so attached to my cello and banjo. I played some guitar and piano. So there was definitely a grieving process I had to go through before I could be open to any other instruments. But with time, with time, I was open to experimenting around with other instruments. Well, that is really encouraging for other musicians who have struggled with similar losses that have made them be unable to play because there are a lot of different reasons why you might not be able to play what you used to play. So I'm glad you found something. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Anna, did you want to add anything to that? The only thing I'll add is that, well, I guess to that conversation is Laura and I have talked sometimes about like replacing goals of if someone had a certain interest. Like, so for Laura, so we talked a little bit about music, but also running was a big interest of hers and something she did a lot of. And we've talked through like whether she would be interested in, or like if someone said, okay, instead of running, you could stationary bike. Initially, I think Laura said that was not something she'd be interested in because she felt like she didn't want to be like replacing running with something quote unquote easier. But over time, she was open to that. And I think now you do that, right, Laura? You use a stationary bike? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But closer in time to the accident, it seems like you were more open to activities that were maybe like very different than anything you had ever done. Like I think you had the opportunity to go kayaking at Walter Reed with Wounded Warriors. And you were into that. Like, I think if I remember correctly in all the conversations we've had, you had kind of more buy-in for something like that. That was just like totally new and different. And not every single brain injury survivor may have that same approach. But it was interesting for me because I think initially I had thought like as a helper and a speech therapist, like, oh, I can like provide similar activities that someone could do. But maybe that's not always the best approach. Maybe someone is like not ready for that yet. And maybe just doing something completely new and different they might be more open to that, potentially. Yeah, that's a great point. That is a really good point. And maybe it also begs the question, well, what was it about running that you loved? You probably loved the runner's high and, and feeling of being in shape. But if you were a runner outside, you also loved being outside. So maybe the kayaking was addressing that part of your love for running, because not everyone likes to exercise inside. Some people you know, some, some people like both, some people like inside, some people like outside. So do you think that had anything to do with it? Or, or when you were running, were you running on a treadmill? No, I previously was running outside. And actually, the kayaking was only inside. Oh, <laughs> you know, so I'm totally wrong. <laughs> no, but you bring up a good point looking in the same vein. For me, it was really getting physical exertion finding a way to really push myself hard physically, which there weren't many options for me <laughs> soon after the accident. Well, once I was able to exert myself physically, there weren't many safe options. So that's why I ended up using a stationary bike since I couldn't fall off <laughs> of a stationary bike. So I think that is a good option. Looking at what other ways could you no, never mind. I don't want to say that because that's contradicting what we were just saying. 
That's okay. You could say it. We're kind of brainstorming here. So yeah. I feel it's like fine. we end up contradicting. There's something else I think we sort of contradicted ourselves about earlier too, but I think that is, it just shows the complexity of what people may feel in recovery from a brain injury and how every person recovering from brain injury is different, but also like a single person, like one person recovering might feel differently at different times during the recovery or even just like day to day or hour to hour, you know? So these are all sort of like general experiences and lessons, but none of them can just be applied globally. Mm -hmm. Well, if you think about it in life, anyone, whether you've sustained a brain injury or not, your interests change. Sometimes the type of exercise you like to do might change what you like aesthetically, you know, art or the way you, you know, interior design, whatever things change throughout your life. So for someone who has had a TBI, not only are their interests naturally changing, but your brain is also changing because it's recovering. So it makes sense that you might feel differently at different times. This kind of leads into another point that Laura and I have talked about a lot in terms of exercise Laura was one of your ways of dealing with stress. And when you were in the hospital, obviously, I mean, you were doing physical therapy, but you weren't doing the exercise that you used to normally doing. And I think that sometimes, you know, we think about like the trauma of having a brain injury and the emotional impact there. But until talking to Laura, I didn't always remember like the fact that people's coping mechanisms may also be gone. So like they're dealing with trauma and the way that maybe in the past they've dealt with stress, they can't do like getting up and going for a walk or a run or potentially like writing in a journal or, you know, like other things that just maybe they were able to do before. Now they can't. I actually just said this to someone I was working with yesterday who told me that she's just been very emotional since her stroke, we realized that some of the coping mechanisms she used, she can't do right now. Exactly. That's such a good point that we've discussed how I had never thought previously about what my coping mechanisms were, my ways of appropriately, maturely, independently handling my frustration or stress. After the brain injury, those coping mechanisms were removed. So I had to find new ways of maturely handling those emotions. And here I was in my mid-20s, and the things that had worked for me for decades were no longer possible. Mm -hmm. And they worked naturally. You didn't have to think through it so much. You just you knew when you were stressed, and you knew that that run gave you stress relief, and you went out and ran, and you enjoyed it. And then all of a sudden, it was taken away. That's not something that we always are thinking about as SLPs. You know, there are so many. This is why it's so great to talk to both of you, because there are just so many pieces to this puzzle. And for you, Laura, unless you know a person has sustained a brain injury, it, it's hard for us to imagine everything. So I really do appreciate you sharing all this with us. I'm happy to. That's, I'm so grateful for the platform to share from both sides of the speech pathology table that things that I would not have thought of to no fault of any other SLPs. We don't think of these things until we experience it. So I'm happy to share. Well, thank you. One of the things that you mentioned that really helped you, and we talked about it a little bit before, but were compensatory strategies and using those to return to life and return to work. And having been through what you've been through with your own TBI, you've been able to take the importance of compensatory strategies and really help some of your clients. Can you talk a little bit about that? First of all, I discovered a need to compensate for a negatively biased outlook. I found that I could get 19 out of 20 questions correct during an SLP session, but the only question that I would remember later would be the one that I had gotten wrong. To counter this negative bias with my memory system, I started keeping what I called a journal of successes. In that notebook, I wrote down any accomplishments, no matter how minor to help me recall the positives and see my progress. Yeah, and we have a picture, like a small picture of that on our handout. 
That's great. That's such a great idea. Did you remember, did someone give you that idea or is that something that you thought of on your own? I just thought of that on my own, thinking about I'm a very determined person and I love goals, but I knew my memory system was impaired. So I needed to keep record of my progress because all I was remembering were the discouraging moments. And that's not a new discovery for me. I am a determined goal-oriented person. So it's not completely new to me, but the memory impairment was new to me. So I needed an external way of tracking those encouraging moments. And do you still keep track of that? Do you still have a journal of success? You know, I should. I haven't been good about keeping up with it, but I definitely still could benefit from it. And I regularly, I advocate the formation and use of a journal of successes to my clients and to fellow peers. Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. Like, that's good for someone recovering from a brain injury, but it's really good for anyone. Definitely. And Laura, I think now you don't use the journal of successes, but you use a lot of other, well, at least I know you use your phone a lot and email, I think, like you email yourself saying, yes, you can talk more to like the compensatory strategies you do use now. Sure. I do have many compensatory strategies that I use regularly with my emails. I email myself probably more often than anyone else. Things when I think of when I'm out, I'll send myself a quick email to, oh, check on this later. And I'll star the emails that need an action on my part. And then I'll unstar them when they're handled. So if I need to follow up on a conversation, I may send myself an email and star it until I have completed that follow-up and then I'll unstar it. And I regularly go into my emails and click on the all starred emails. So I see all of my notes that need to be handled. Well, that is a great idea. And have you used that same system with some of your clients? I have. After I became so passionate about compensatory strategies and their role in recovery from brain injury, I started a group at hers called Compensatory Strategies. And I've had weeks on remembering names, which is a very common area of difficulty after brain injury. I've had a lesson on forming goals. How can you form realistic goals and then work towards them to accomplish those goals? Yeah, I think one thing you told me that you used and I think that you taught in your class too was using Facebook right? To like, was that you? I think that was you who told me that. Facebook Um, as a compensatory strategy. Do tell. (laughs) It is. Where else, if you're not an axe murderer, where else would you have a list of all the people you know (laughs) with pictures of where you know them, things that you have in common, that sounds creepy. Earlier on, I used the compensatory strategies of Facebook. I don't as much anymore, but certainly for new brain injury survivors, I recommend taking advantage of this database that you have. That is a great idea. That is a great, I mean, I think, you know, I've done that from time to time, like, oh, I don't really remember that person. And oh, you know, oh, yeah, that someone's related, you know, someone is friends with someone else. But I never really thought of it as a compensatory strategy to use with cognitive impairments. That is an excellent, thank you for that suggestion. No problem. Yeah, before I've gone to a gathering, I have you can click on Facebook, sometimes where you know people from, you could click on a like, oh, this church, and all the people will come up. <laughs> so you can review names before you go to a party and how you know people. Yeah, there are a lot of compensatory strategies through social media. Well, that's great. One other one I'll point out just because we have it on the handout too, is that Laura used a tracking sheet for her therapies and other tasks that she wanted to get done during the day. So like, there's a lot on there. You, if if you have access to it, you can see but like, 
yeah, all the OT exercises, PT exercises, cello, piano, making a physical goals. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that is also something that we could help our clients create during speech therapy sessions. Absolutely. That is very helpful. It was really overwhelming when I was getting all of these recommendations from different therapies and being the organized type A person, I was actually intending to follow up on all of these little recommendations. And then I would be discouraged and frustrated with myself. Like, why are you not doing daily all of these tasks? So I formed this giant to-do list (laughs) that at least was a visual way of seeing all the different tasks I was intending to complete. Laura, you bring up such a good point, though, because as therapists, sometimes we're in our silo. We're in our SLP silo and the OT is in their silo and PT in their silo. And, you know, sometimes there is an opportunity to co-treat and have rehab meetings where we're talking about goals together. But on a day-to-day basis, sometimes we do give patients a lot of information and maybe too much information. And, you, you know, with the best of intentions, we don't want patients or clients to feel overwhelmed. So that awareness is really good for us to hear. Absolutely. And knowing all those skills of executive function, the attention, organization, prioritization, initiation, following through on all those little skills that are frequently impaired after brain injury. It's good for us to be aware of what we're asking our clients to do with a potentially impaired system. Absolutely. All right. Well, one of the other really exciting things that has come out of this experience is your commitment to advocacy, self-advocacy. And can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Brain injury is often referred to as a hidden disability, meaning that TBI survivors often look fine because they may not have a missing limb, may not need an assistive device, may not have very evident scars. However, someone may not feel as good as they look. So survivors may be experiencing headaches are easily overstimulated, or may be experiencing any other number of hidden symptoms common in brain injury. Because these areas of challenge may not be apparent to others, it is likely a survivor will need to kindly educate and verbally advocate for themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think one other thing that sort of relates to this a little bit too is we've talked Somebody actually, I'll call her out, Kristen Slauson, who's an advisor at UMD, and Laura and I know her through various channels, but she told us about this study, it's in our references by Iverson et al., called the Good Old Days Bias, where brain injury survivors sometimes underestimate past difficulties. And I think that in terms of advocating for assistance, they might be hesitant to do so because they think like no one else needs help or like no, you know, ever. And so I think just reminding people too that nobody's perfect and we all use compensatory strategies can be important, an important point too. Like I tend to point out like, okay, I'm taking notes right now because I'm not going to remember this later. Yeah. And I think yeah, just that's one other point we want to make. And then, Laura, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about recommendations for helping clients to self-advocate, other recommendations. Yeah. So we believe that it should be an individual decision and initiated by the survivor to allow them to determine how much is disclosed. And maybe this will involve the survivor memorizing a phrase or participating in role play during a session. I frequently have clients participate in role play in sessions to talk about some of the accommodations they would like to request for a home, public locations, school. I try to provide education on appropriate self-disclosure and opportunities to practice during the groups and individual speech sessions I facilitate. 
Well, that's great. There's also the obstacle of vulnerability when you self-advocate, because when you self-advocate, you're revealing some of your challenges and someone overcoming a brain injury is trying to overcome those challenges. So again, it's kind of a double-edged sword because in that self-advocacy that can help you in the end, you have to face what's challenging you now and what you might not want to reveal. Yeah, exactly. And giving survivors opportunities to practice that self-disclosure. So they're in control of deciding ahead of time, how much do I want to disclose and how can I request that I'm assisted? And I think this is something speech therapists definitely can do. I know that, Laura, I think you worked a little bit with a neuropsychologist too. And I don't know that you worked with any vocational, you work with vocational therapists now (laughs) in your current role, but as a patient, I don't know that you worked with vocational therapists, but they can also be helpful. I think also for speech therapists, knowing when to refer out, because I think sometimes they may have more knowledge of like the legal side of things in terms of disclosures. We can help maybe with the script writing and like how you actually want to communicate what you're saying. But I think being aware of that, like the legal side of things, I do think neuropsychologists and vocational therapists can be good resources for that kind of thing. That's a very good point. Now, is a vocational therapist usually a trained social worker? Is that, or is it a different discipline? You know, it's a great question. I don't know the answer to that for sure. It would be embarrassing for me to misstate this because hers has become such a vocational focused business. So I don't want to misstate what is required of them. (laughs) An interesting field though. Maybe we'll get a vocation. That would be great to get a vocational therapist from hers on the podcast. (laughs) Well, yeah. I could easily arrange that. Okay. Well, thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing those strategies. Were there any other strategies that you wanted to mention? Well, since it's a group that I facilitate and it's a passion of mine, I have a bunch of tricks up my sleeve. But I think one main tip is that you want to get in the habit of using a strategy before it becomes necessary. So, for example, I now in the habit of always writing down where I park in a parking garage. If I go to the mall or if I go to a new parking garage, now I always take a picture before I walk away or write down in my phone exactly where I parked. That's just a general tip with compensatory strategies. You want to have the strategies practiced and up your sleeve before you desperately need them. So it's your routine. When you park, your routine is is you're going to either take a picture or note your parking location. Yes, that's such a good one. If you don't attend to it, you can't remember it and making it a routine to attend and then remember it with the compensatory strategy of the phone or writing it down. That's a great idea. Say that again, use it, use the strategy before it becomes necessary. The general rule for compensatory strategies is that you want these compensatory strategies practiced and ready to go before you desperately need them. So I have strategies for where I park, where I store things, try to form habits, (laughs) regular habits of where you put certain items so that you won't lose them. Well, that's great. All right. So what are you all up to now? Now that you have several years of being an SLP behind you, do you have any projects that you'd like to share with us? So I've been the director of speech pathology at HERS for over four years now. During the earlier days of the COVID pandemic, I started virtually supervising graduate speech pathology students, completing some of their externship hours through HERS, which I loved. It's been an even greater pleasure to provide in-person supervision, and I love instructing and collaborating with these graduate student interns. Thanks to many study sessions and motivational talks by Anna, I earned my certification as a brain injury specialist. Now, I am also a certified Lingraphica technology specialist. 
am involved in the Brain Injury Association of Maryland, and as mentioned, have had the honor of giving many multimedia presentations on my personal recovery from TBI and the clinical applications. Locations for these presentations have included graduate speech-language pathology programs, the National Institutes of Health, Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, and this past year, presenting with Anna at the ASHA convention, which was really a dream come true for us. I post some compensatory strategies and brain injury facts on a personal Instagram account I started called SLP underscore TBI. And that's on our handout as well, the Instagram link. Yeah, and I'm, as you said at the beginning, I'm a senior speech-language pathologist at Adventist. I work inpatient rehab now full-time. I've also done a little bit of outpatient and very little bit of acute care in the past. And I co-facilitate the brain injury support group here that meets, well, I do it once a month, but we do other meetings sometimes too. The group is an amazing group that started in 2003. I became involved with it in 2010 and it's survived going virtual during the pandemic. Although we did, attendance went down a little bit during that time, but we're starting to get back in person. So that's very exciting. And even though I do not speak Spanish, I helped start a Spanish brain injury support group here in 2016 with a colleague of mine. We had this amazing patient who had aphasia but spoke Spanish. So the interpreter I was working with and I tried to find groups for him to join and we realized there were none. <laughs> so we started one and that group I'm not, no longer involved in, but my wonderful colleague Amelie Vale has taken over and she speaks Spanish and is running it. And so that's going strong as well, which is great. I love the fact that you started a group when you didn't even know Spanish yourself. <laughs> you know, you didn't like, I know very you don't little let things bit. stop you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I really was inspired by this individual because he was just like, yeah, he didn't let aphasia stop him. So I was like, well, why should I let this stop me? And yeah, so that was cool. And as Laura said, I have my brain injury certification. I'm LSVT certified, although I don't use that a whole lot, but I still appreciate the education and the skills I've learned from that. So yeah, those are some of the things I'm up to. Well, that's very exciting. And just again about your, you know, ASHA presentation, I was in the audience and that was really special. And I do hope that down the line, you might have another opportunity to present with ASHA because I think you really amazed the entire audience. And it was on the last day, as I said, and it was a full, it was a packed house. <laughs> we were very grateful. <laughs> yeah, it was really cool. All right. And well, we referred to the handout a little bit throughout, but let's talk about it. So you have some photos and also keys for SLPs working with TBI survivors. You have the journal of success and the chart, and then also helpful resources, which are really, really helpful for both SLPs and patients and families. You also list podcasts, websites, and an app, which that's currently in the testing phase. Can you tell us a little bit about that app? Yeah. So I, well, I helped out with a study by Priya Kucheria about goal attainment scaling. And so basically, it's an app that can just help SLPs set goals for their clients. Again, looking at like helping with the motivational interviewing part. So figuring out what exactly is a good functional and motivating goal for your client. And then also helping to set measurable goals using some self-rating scales and looking at like where a person rates themselves at the current point and what would it look like if they did, if they exceeded their goal, what would it look like if they did worse than expected, that kind of thing. So it helps make things more tangible. There are also similar types of resources on 
honeycomb speech therapy. I think both Laura and I have used that resource a lot. That's Sarah Barr's website. Don't know her at all personally, but I've gotten a lot of great resources off of that site as well. Yeah, for the same kind of, I mean, for many, many things, but also for that helping to set goals and measure goals. Well, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Do you all have any final takeaway points that you would like to share? Yeah. So I think that Laura and I always talk about how when we do these talks, we definitely want other SLPs working with people with TBI to get ideas and you know ways of doing therapy, setting goals, et cetera. But ultimately, we really want to get across the humanity behind what we do each day. And that the people we treat have roles beyond being patients, you know, like they could be speech therapists (laughs) and that life is precious and can change in an instant. So I think, you know, even if you don't, well, I think one other thing is there's this quote that we love to talk about by Maya Angelou, which is that, now I'm going to get it wrong, but I think it's people forget what you say, what you said, they'll forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel And I think like at the end of the day, if you forget everything that we've said in this podcast about like, oh, this was something that was good for Laura, this was bad or this whatever, like just being there for your clients and making them feel good or not even necessarily good, but just providing empathy and support for them is ultimately what we want to get across. And we know everyone is a little bit different. Every TBI is different. But like I said, you know, this is just one story, but I think some parts of it can be more global. Yeah. And I do think that Laura and I often say, like, we try to keep in mind all of these ideas that we've expressed today, but we can't always do it (laughs) perfectly either. So just like we say, give yourselves grace as you're trying to implement all these things. And yeah, just try your best and I think that's it. I might come (laughs) jump back on with something else I think of later. But Laura, what about you? Our experiences have reinforced how important we think it is to have an atmosphere of open dialogue and exhibit a collaborative approach in the brain injury survivor's care. We believe this joint communication will help the survivor view the therapist, their personal team of family members, other care partners, and themselves as being on the same team. Medical professionals may be the experts on the specifics of the recovery process, but the survivor is an expert on what will motivate or discourage them individually. Also, I think we've lived just long enough to realize that you shouldn't count out any friendship, and you shouldn't minimize any friendship. You just don't know which ones are going to be life-changing. Like the young co-worker you have only known for four and a half months, she just might be a lifelong friend, present through some of the hardest and some of the greatest moments yet, which is what Anna is for me. Well, thank you both for sharing your story of friendship, resilience, advocacy, advocating for each other is really such an inspiration to all of us as SLPs, but all of us as as human beings. So I really appreciate you both being with me today and look forward to hearing about you in the future. Thank Thank you. you Yeah. And a special thank you to Mary Beth for, I feel like you out of our talk at ASHA talked about one thing that came through for you was our friendship. And that isn't something that we necessarily like went into trying to get across. But once you pointed that out, and as we were kind of discussing this podcast, Laura and I realized how much that was an important part of our story. So thank you for having us on and getting to think about it in that way. Because we really, I think we always consider ourselves great friends. And we always knew that in the back of our minds, but it was never so explicit. So thank you for that. Well, sometimes actions speak louder than words, right? And (laughs) when I heard your story and saw the actions, you both really stuck with each other through the thick and the thin. Uh, That's such a good example. You know, sometimes 
it's hard for us at work, you know, because we want to have that professional distance and we don't always connect with our coworkers as much because of that. But we are in a field where we do have that human connection. And that really is a blessing of speech language pathology. And your friendship is a blessing to each other and all of us because it's a great example. So thank you for sharing it with us. Oh, thank you so much for this opportunity. Yes, thank you. Well, you're welcome. Have a great day. You too. You too. Thanks. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.